You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, Luke chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 11. We'll dive back into our, our study of the gospel of Luke tonight, which we've been in for well over a year. <clears throat> And, uh, and, and as you're kind of turning there, find your place, maybe some of you have already found it, uh, let me kind of frame our conversation this way a little bit. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about pride, okay? So like, buckle your seatbelts, get ready, pride is a difficult topic. Nobody wants to talk about pride, right? So when you think about the topic of pride, when you think about your struggle with pride personally, like what happens in your heart as you start thinking about pride? The topic of pride maybe cause you to start reflecting on somebody else's behavior, that should be a flag, yellow, red flag in your own life. Immediately, oh, I know this one prideful, arrogant person. I want you to stop right there. I want you to turn this back around on yourself. What do you start thinking of when you start thinking about pride? Does it, does it make you feel anxious? Does it, does it make you feel nervous to think about this topic of pride and how Jesus might use his word tonight to maybe shine his light on areas of pride deep uh, within your heart? Do, do you maybe feel at a loss for words in a moment when you start thinking about pride? Does it kind of scare you? Do you think about maybe running for the doors? Do you think about maybe hiding in the corner for a moment? J.C. Ryle, um, old commentator, dead now. I love reading dead guys. You guys know that when it comes to theology. J.C. Ryle said this about pride. He said, the man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. It's a striking statement. A striking statement as I read it and reflect on it. My hope and my prayer is that you would even write that down and reflect upon it in this week in your devotional times. I think this statement is meant to cause conflict like deep within our heart. It's meant to stir things up a bit. It's meant to get your mind and your emotions and your desires kind of spinning and twisting a little as you wrestle with your own tendencies towards pride and as you struggle with the roots of pride that honestly go so deep within our hearts, I think it's sometimes it's easy to miss. So think about maybe these types of evidences. If you're here in these moments and you're hearing all this preaching about pride in these moments and you're, you're shutting down for a minute maybe, zero in on some of these evidences of pride within each of us for a moment. Do you struggle with self-promotion? Just promoting yourself maybe grandiosing things, maybe, maybe making yourself seem better than you actually, or always telling stories of your own successes, or always telling stories of your own desires, your own priorities, your own wants, or even your own struggles. Self-promotion can find its way deep within our relationships and our lives without us even knowing it. What about self-gratification? Self-gratification, is it hard for you to wait is it hard for you to have patience for those things that you really want? Or are you always bouncing from one thing to the next, one relationship to the next, one fun activity to the next because you need to just gratify this deep sense of, of lostness deep within you? Self-promotion, self-gratification. How about self-expression? 
about self-expression. Maybe for you, maybe it's much less about gratification. Maybe it's much less about promoting yourself. Maybe you already feel like you're not really all that loud when you're in the crowd, but maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's more about self-expression. Maybe you're looking for that special place to just express yourself to the entire world, and you just feel like you can't find that space, that place yet. That could be an evidence of pride in your life. Or how about self-pity? Self-pity where you're always walking down with your head down low and you're never walking in victory, which is, what, which, was what the, which is what the evidence of the cross and the gospel at work in your life is victory, joy. Maybe for you, maybe it's more self-pity. It could be an evidence of pride. And the root of all these things that we've talked about is pride because the root of all those struggles is really a severe focus on me. It's severe self focus. So the reason that this passage is super important for us is that we, we, we learn something about pride. We learn this. We learn that God crushes pride, pride and promotes humbleness. Another way of saying it would be to say that God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. God crushes proud, promotes the humble. He crushes pride in our hearts through the preaching of the word, through the application of the gospel the application of the cross of Christ on a daily basis to our lives. When we do this, it is an act of crushing pride and then feeding or promoting humility deep within us. Somebody asked me one time just tangibly, like, what does humility or humbleness look like? Here's what it looks like. It looks like teachability. It doesn't look like you or I asking questions of others just to open the door and an opportunity for you and I to then express ourselves. It's actually us winsomely wanting to learn more and more about others. It's putting others first and ourselves second. Just think sometimes about the conversations in relationships that you might have. How often do you take the center throne in those conversations or those relationships? How often are you others focused? This is what happens as we come into contact with the scriptures and the gospel. What God does is he crushes pride deep within our hearts and he promotes humility, an attitude of humbleness. So look at verse one in Luke chapter 14. Luke says this, as one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. And he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. Verse seven. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this portion of Scripture, he said this, he said, 
But this passage provides a physical illustration of a basic spiritual principle of the gospel in the Christian life. That principle is this. In order to rise up to glory, we first have to fall down in humility. In order to rise up to glory, we first have to fall down in humility. In doing this, we are following the example of Jesus Christ who was humiliated before he was exalted. In other words, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is meant to crush the proud man and promote the humble man. Pride comes before the fall. God despises and crushes the proud of heart. It is the humble in spirit that the Lord promotes. These verses really for us are a study in the difference between the proud person that God crushes and the humble person that God promotes. And in, in these verses, we kind of see a framework. It's a framework of the Sabbath day, the place of honor, and the lowest place. That's kind of the, if you're an outliner like me and you need to have everything nice and organized, you could organize your notes this way. The Sabbath day, place of honor, and the lowest place. And through those three pieces of the narrative story that we're looking at this evening, we learn this one very simple principle all throughout, that God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. Verses one through six, Luke tells us about a certain Sabbath day. Luke, Luke explains that on one Sabbath, Jesus went to dine in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Would have been common for religious leaders of that day and even today to throw a dinner party after the normal Sunday, Sabbath, Saturday, Sabbath, however you look at it. Then it was Saturday. Today we practice on Sunday because we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. It would have been normal for religious leaders to throw dinner parties and to invite people over to the house. And people would come, they would eat food, they would pass out, they would take naps, they would hang out together. They'd probably play the Wii, go shoot shotguns in the back if that's so um, trip their trigger, I suppose. It was on one of those days when there was a party, a feast. Typically what would happen is if there was a famous teacher in town, that famous teacher would get invited over for this party. So Jesus was invited to this party over at the Pharisee's house. Luke explains that the Pharisees had taken notice of Jesus' presence. And you'll notice this phrase in verse 1 where it says that they were watching him carefully. They were watching him carefully. This information, this, this tidbit in verse 1 that the Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully shouldn't surprise us at all if we, if we remember that all of the skirmishes between Jesus and the Pharisees up until this point have typically ended really badly for the Pharisees. They've ended really badly for them, and they've been shamed publicly by Jesus, which has basically left them always looking for ways to trap him. This is first sign of pharisaical pride deep within our hearts is when we stand smugly back and we refuse to engage relationships with other people, but we instead are looking for yet another way that we can trap somebody else and point the finger at them for all of their wrongdoing. Almost like hiding in a corner with your little pencil and your little notebook, waiting. Oh, he did that wrong. Oh, she said that wrong. Oh, they did this wrong. They don't measure up. 
This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're standing in the corner and they're waiting and they're watching him carefully to see if he would do something that was against their rules, plotting to bring harm to him. And so with the Pharisees watching Jesus like hawks, with the audience waiting, with the tone set, with the stage there, with the curtains drawn back, we see that there's a man present with a severe physical disease. Luke tells us that there was a man who was present who had dropsy. Isn't it just like the Pharisees to be standing back and thinking more about the person that they want to trap than about the person who's in need in their midst? Don't you think about this for a minute? What is it that dominates your thinking and your desires and your heart? Is your heart and your mind and your life more focused on what everybody else has done wrong? So much so that you miss the fact that you are sitting right next to people who are in need and therefore miss the fact that you could be the person who serves that need. Verse two does tell us that there was a man before him that had dropsy. Great timing, right? Perfect timing. As Jesus' enemies are sitting there and they're just waiting for him to break their little list of man-made rules. Like, I can't believe that he would do this on this day. There was nothing in Scripture that said that you should not extend mercy to someone in need of that on a Sabbath day. These Pharisees were powerless. Powerless to help this man among their midst because they were more focused on their self-promotion, their self-absorption, or more focused on themselves than on either the king who was present among them or the people who needed the power of the king that was present among them as well. But in this story, we learn this. We learn that God crushes the proud. He promotes the humble. See, Jesus doesn't run from the issue. He doesn't run from from a certain argument and a certain uh, uh, fight. He stays. He doesn't go running and hiding in the corner from the conflict. He doesn't sit around stewing on the issue at hand. But instead, he notices that the Pharisees have been watching him and that they are setting a trap for him. In verse 3, look at verse 3. We learn that Jesus responds to the lawyers and Pharisees. And I don't think about this for a minute. The Pharisees and lawyers hadn't said anything, correct? There's nothing in our text that leads us to believe that the Pharisees had said anything at all. They had just been standing there in their minds, thinking things about Jesus, waiting to trap him in something. And Jesus responds to them because he knows what's in the heart of man, especially in the heart of prideful people. And he responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying this, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So Jesus, again, he knows what's in the heart of these Pharisees on this Sabbath day. And when he asks this question, it's like he's drawing a line in the sand. If the Pharisees say that it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, then they will be violating their own man-made rules for keeping the Sabbath holy. But if they say that it isn't okay to heal this man on the Sabbath, then they risk not being merciful, and they had to have known that. I think when Jesus asks these questions, he asks these questions to draw out what's going on deep within our hearts. He does this with these Pharisees and the pride that is 
going on inside of them. It's like they're getting a light shined on it. Anybody ever have cockroaches in their house? I've had cockroaches in my house before. I'm sad to admit that. Here's what happens. You turn the lights off in your kitchen, those blasted things come out of the woodwork, out of everywhere. They'll like be all over your walls, your cabinets, your counters, the floors. The minute you turn the lights on, what do you think they do? And they scatter, like, gone. This is what happens in the heart of prideful people when Jesus begins to shed light on what's happening in our hearts. He's like, hey, yo, are you going to be more concerned with following your list of man-made rules, or are you actually going to be concerned with extending the mercy of the gospel to other people around you? Are you going to withhold yourself from relationship with others and hide in the corner because you're watching and waiting to get people under your thumb because it's all about you, or are you going to extend mercy to someone in your midst? And the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, the text tells us, Luke explains to us, that these guys in this text, they didn't answer. They had no answer. They had to have become afraid because Jesus was shining a light deep within those places of their hearts. Luke tells us that they remained silent. Jesus' question had basically reversed the trap. The Pharisees had fallen into the the very trap that they were using to bring harm to Jesus. This is what I love about David. If you read the Psalms, when David writes the Psalms, he writes about his enemies, those people that were coming to get him. He actually writes this Psalm, somewhere between Psalms 1 and Psalms 9. He writes about his own son, Absalom, who is out to get him. His son Absalom had actually slept with all of his concubines and wives in public to shame him. This is how bad it was for David. David had done some bad things too. Trust me, I'm coming around to a point. David tells this story about Absalom. One of the things that he says is he says, God, please help my enemies to fall into the trap that they dug for me. Help them to fall into the hole that they dug for me. Later, he goes on to praise God. God, you cause them to fall into their own ditches and their own holes. This is what's happening in this text is Jesus is spinning this question and this argument in such a way that it is causing these Pharisees to fall into a trap whereby they would recognize and come face to face with the pride that is rooted deep within their hearts and lives. Since they said nothing, Jesus' response to the Pharisees' refusal to answer him, he responds by healing the man. He heals him and then sends him on his way. And then in verse 5, he again addresses the Pharisees. Look at verse 5. He addresses the, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders by asking them a second question. Hey, if the first question didn't work, let's ask a second one. We'll see if they can get this one straight, right? So he asked this second question. He says, how about this? Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? This is a great follow-up question to the, to the first question. It's meant to be a warning of sorts to the Pharisees. It's meant to be a warning to those of us in this room, all of us in this room, in this struggle that all of us struggle in called pride. It's meant to be a warning. It's meant to remind us that our question, our answer to these questions can reveal what's happening deep within our hearts. What do you think their response now? Their response now is further silence. 
further silence, they could not reply to these things. It says in verse 6, these Pharisees on this Sabbath day were completely powerless to speak in response to what Jesus said and did in their midst. But through this story, again, we are reminded, we're reminded once again that God crushes pride and promotes humility. How does this portion of text challenge you and I? What's it meant to elicit or draw out in each of you or I's hearts? These guys in our passage, man, they were powerless, like I said, powerless to speak. They couldn't help this man. They were powerless to speak, powerless to help people in their midst because of their legalistic lifestyles. Their legalistic lifestyles had trapped them in a a prison cell of self-promotion, self-gratification, self-expression, self-pity, and self-preservation. J.C. Ryle again said this. He said, the Sabbath was made for man for his benefit, not for his injury, for his advantage, not for his hurt. The interpretation of God's law respecting the Sabbath was never intended to be strained so far as to interfere with charity, kindness, and the real wants of human nature. How often do you find yourself in that place where you're kind of backed in a corner by Jesus? Where you're like completely speechless? Because Jesus maybe has ripped the curtains off the windows of your Heart revealed maybe the dark worm of pride deep within you, eating away at your soul. When you realize that maybe you've been using your religious experience, your theological knowledge, or maybe your circle of friends to make yourself look better or to make yourself look more important, that's when you can rest assured Jesus is shining light on pride deep within your heart. And we all need to be challenged in these moments by this passage. We all need to be challenged in these moments by these questions from this passage. We all need to be reminded and to remember the fact that God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. And as we move into verses 7 through 9, we see that Luke tells us about this place of honor. Luke moves on from telling us about the Sabbath day into kind of a second portion of the passage where he tells us about the place of honor. And in verse 7, Jesus begins to tell a parable to those who are invited. He, he moves his attention from the Pharisees in the room to everyone that is there that has been invited. Everyone that is gathered at the party, Jesus turns his attention there and he begins to address them, begins to tell them. Our text tells us that he begins to tell them a parable. Verse 7 says he began to tell a parable to those who were invited to the big dinner feast, Right? I think because the Pharisees were unable to make good on their little trap and because they were also unable to respond to Jesus' questions. This is the reason that Jesus now turns his attention to teaching the gathered crowd about the problem of pride and about the need for humility. Jesus doesn't just tell some offhanded story, though. So when Jesus tells parables, parables are are stories, sometimes mostly fictitious stories that are meant to bring a truth home to you and I, meant to preach and to teach spiritual truths. Jesus, as he gets ready to tell this story, we notice that he's been studying his surroundings. Because the text tells us that Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor. You look back at verse seven. Luke informs us that Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor. In other words, Jesus was studying the surroundings and the behavior of the people 
And then he was using the results of his study, so to speak, to challenge them with a story that was meant to convey a spiritual truth about pride and humility. Namely, he was wanting to teach them that God crushes pride and, and he promotes humbleness and promotes humility. God crushes the proud person and he promotes the humble person. Notice what Jesus says in verses eight through nine. Jesus says this. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Imagine, imagine with me that you are there in the room on that Sabbath day with Jesus, right? You're there with Jesus, and you're observing all of the jockeying for position that is happening around the room. All of the subtle attempts by everyone there to one-up everybody else's stories, all the grandiose stories of personal accomplishments, all the conversational chatter that, that ebbs and flows from self-pitying failures to self-promoting posturing, all the subtle maneuvering to get close to the people of influence and power. It's in this context. It's in this context that Jesus speaks. What he, what he says is meant to teach us not to seek the place of honor God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. And when Luke tells us about the place of honor, he is, he is teaching us that Jesus notices our prideful attempts to gain recognition. He notices our prideful attempts to get attention, our, our prideful attempts at jockeying for position or posturing ourselves as better than we really are. Jesus notices these things. And in the midst of all of our prideful attempts to seek the place of honor and prestige, it's so easy for us to forget that God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes, another commentator, commenting on this passage, says this. He says, the Pharisees and the scribes, despite all of their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. Let me read this again. I don't want you to miss this. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own self. Listen, it's, it's not merely a question of do you think too much of yourself? It's a question of do you think of yourself too much? Let me ask that again. Let me, let me shake out the nuance. It's not so much a question of do you think too much of yourself. It's a question of do you think of yourself too much. It's the real question for us. What would it look like for you to completely forget yourself? What would it look like for you and I to walk in an attitude of self-forgetfulness whereby we, we thought of other people's needs more than our own? where even the slight twinge of feeling slighted or the slight twinge of feeling left out or the slight twinge of feeling like we don't fit in, where all those twinges that come up, maybe those were just uh, yellow flags and indicators for us to say, ah, I need Jesus to help me to focus on someone else and not myself. What would it look like for you and I to be less self-focused and to be more self-forgetful? What would it look like for you and I, for our conversations, 
just for our conversations to be centered on promoting other people or serving other people rather than ourselves? What would it look like for, for you and I to be less important in our own eyes? What would it take for other people's opinions? Catch this. Like, this is a funny thing. It's a funny thing in our church especially. Like, if, if I haven't had this conversation once a day with different people, it's interesting. Like, opinions are a big deal. Like, we, we find value in our opinions, right? Value in our opinions over, oh, well, I think that song's better. Oh, I think this movie's better. Oh, I think that guitar is better. Oh, I think this is better. You know, who cares? I think Jesus is better. I think Jesus is better. I think Jesus matters more than any opinion on any secondary thing that gets your blood boiling. Like when my blood starts to get boiling on a secondary matter, man, it reminds me that I need Jesus right now to get my eyes off of me and on someone else. And opinions can sometimes ruin relationships. And the reason that can happen is because you and I can get so focused on our own opinions about our own stuff that we totally miss. Not only somebody else's needs in the relationship and in the room, but we totally miss the Jesus who wants to serve both of us in that relationship because we're too hung up on the things that we like more than everybody else. I just think this is a real challenge for us, all of us. What would it take for other people's opinions and struggles to be more important than your opinions or your struggles? And we all need to be challenged in these moments by this passage as Jesus speaks and as he asks these questions of these Pharisees and religious leaders. We all need to be challenged in these moments by the fact that God crushes the proud and he promotes the humble. Look at verses 10 through 11. Verses 10 through 11, Luke tells us about uh, the lowest place. He moves, he moves on. So far in our narrative, we've, we've examined the Sabbath day. And then as Jesus encountered the Pharisees and, and then he heals this sick man, we then turn our attention to the first portion of Jesus' challenge to the entire gathered group of people as he, as he talks about uh, what it looks like to pridefully position yourself in a place of honor and prestige to only then later maybe be shamed in the midst of that. And so then he moves on in this second portion of his uh, exhortation or teaching to the gathered group of people and he begins to take a look about what it, what it looks like to be in the lowest place. As Jesus uh, kind of basically concludes what he has to say to these folks, we'll examine this second half. As we look specifically at what he says about choosing the lowest place rather than always being vying for a different position in a higher place. He continues in this second half of his parable and he begins in verse 10 and he says, he says like, hey, hey, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. When you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. In other words, Jesus is saying that we should intentionally jockey or fight. What would it look like for us to be a people who fight to have our opinions lose? Well, what would it look like for us to be a people to fight to have somebody else's opinion look better than ours? What would it look like for us to fight, to champion a cause that is different than what we think is the, the weekly uh, spiritual uh, soapbox for us to get on? 
What would that look like for us to be so others focused that our opinions and our lives didn't matter at all? We were willing to sacrifice everything about our lives for the good and for the sake of other people around us. What would it look like for you and I to enter into a conversation and have that conversation be all about the other person across the table from us? What would that look like for you and for me? It would be a good practice. I know that many of us do this. I think this text is really just a, an encouragement, a challenge for this to happen more in our midst. You know why? Because this is winsome. Because this is a picture of the gospel. Because this is a picture of Jesus. This is something that Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't show up at the dinner table to then sit down and start ranting and raving and rattle on about all the new little gadgets he got and all the great movies he saw and all the cool music that he loves. When Jesus shows up at the table, he sits down, he says, hey, how's it going with you, brother? How's it going with you, sister? Like, what's, what, can I, what can I fix in you? He notices the fact that there's somebody in their midst that needs to be healed and does it because he's got the power to do it because he's not self-absorbed. Man, this is such a powerful message, like, just for me, just for my own heart not to be so self-absorbed on my own wishes, desires, wants, interests, opinions. It's good to see this picture, this portrait of Jesus, right? What do you think? Isn't it so easy for us to get caught up? Isn't it so easy for us to get caught up in everything that's about ourselves? Why? Because we go into self-defense mode. Like life sucks, life is hard, people hurt us, all those things happen, right? And so we make it in, unintentionally all about ourselves so that we can keep people at arm's length, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is like continuing to move towards the cross where he will lose his life for your sake and my sake. Jesus, it's not about, about self-defense or self-posturing or self-promotion or self-gratification or self-expression. It's nothing about himself because he gave up himself so that you and I could be saved and changed. What if we, what, what if that doctrine, what if this teaching of the gospel, this teaching of Jesus actually permeated the way that we feel? What if, the, what if we woke, when we woke up in the morning, what if when I woke up in the morning, I get all ticked off because like the dishes weren't done the night before, you know, maybe Chrissy didn't put away uh, food, maybe there's ketchup on the plates, oh, that gets my blood boiling, right? What, what, what if in those moments when that starts happening for me, what if I just shut my face and sat there and drank my coffee and said, hey, Jesus, what would you do in these moments? How could I just serve my family? How could I just love my family? Like, how could I walk in these moments in a way that is much less about the things that I think, feel, or, or believe that I deserve, but I'm actually in a place where I want to then serve like you? What, what if I just focus on the cross and the bloodshed and the broken body of Christ, which I proclaim saves me? And what if I just did that for, for long enough so that my thinking would shift and I would begin to think, you know what, I just want to, I want to serve my wife, I want to serve my family, I want to get up, I want to do some dishes. Yeah, it usually takes a cup of coffee. Agreed, okay, maybe two. So coffee's helpful, okay? I think coffee's like a, like, it's like a gospel blessing from Jesus, really, it is. <laughs> okay, right, right? <laughs> So what if, we all, what if we all could be moving from that place of selfishness, self-focus, moving to a place of self-forgetfulness? What would it look like for us to intentionally jockey or fight? What if the fights we had were much less about our opinions, our wishes, our wants, our desires, our likes? What if it was less about that and more about promoting somebody else's? Opinions and likes. That's what I think what I'm really pushing for. 
And imagine what this would convey not, not only to our brothers and our sisters here in this church family, not just here, but what that would also convey to the watching world around us in our community. I mean, you think about this, right? There's 26, 27,000 people living in Hastings, Nebraska. Do you know how many people are just living for themselves in our community? Like their paycheck, their job, their next brand new car, their next boyfriend, girlfriend, their next set of brand new clothes, the next time they get to watch their show on TV, their next thing where they can self-express themselves, self-gratify themselves. See, we, we, we're all being one out of that same culture. We live here in this city. This, this is the culture that's permeated our world around us, and we're being won out of that by the gospel as Jesus continues to draw us to himself and draws us to the cross and then changes us. What would this look like as he changes us this way whereby we were self-forgetful and more others-focused? Our pride was being crushed, and our humility or our humbleness was being promoted and cultivated and grown, and the conversations we were having was much less about us and more about them and more about him. Like, what would that speak and what would that say to the city and the culture and the community of people around us? Think about this word presence in our passage. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus says that you will be honored in the presence of all, in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Think about your presence in relationship with everyone around you. Think about your presence in relationship with your banker. Think about your presence in relationship with the girl at Russ's supermarket here in town. Think about your presence in relationship with the person who works at Walmart. Think about your presence in relationship with your coworkers. Think about your presence in relationship with your next door neighbor. Think about your presence in relationship with, uh, with just your set of friends here in town. Think about your presence in this community as you walk into Jimmy John's or as you walk into the coffee shops or as you walk into the local pubs or bars to grab a beer. Think about your presence there. And, and my question is this, when you are present there, what is your presence speaking? What does your presence say to those people when you show up? Will Jesus honor you in the presence of all in that community of fellowship and relationship? God crushes the proud and he promotes the humble, crushes our pride and he continues to cultivate humility in each of us. And this statement at the end of the Jesus parable about choosing the lowest place is both a, a challenging warning and a comforting encouragement. He says this in verse 11 to wrap it up. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This statement is both a challenging warning to all of us in regards to our struggle with pride, because in it we are warned and challenged that if we are not actively running down, like chasing down our sinful pride to murder it ruthlessly, then we are in danger of being humbled. This final remark is also a statement of comforting encouragement. So it reminds us that if we are in fact chasing down our prideful desires, our prideful thoughts, and our prideful behavior, then we can trust that we will be exalted, promoted, and lifted up from our lowest place because God crushes the proud, promotes the humble. What would it look like for you and I? What would it look like for you and I to take the lowest place, to intentionally choose the lowest place in regards to, again, our opinions? What would it look like for us to take the lowest place in regards to our relationships with others, with our friends, our family members, our coworkers. God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. 
Let me invite our music team forward as we begin to conclude our time together. I've been, I've been reading a book by this dude named Zach Eswine. Uh, and, the, and the name of the book is called The Imperfect Pastor. It's been rocking my world, been rattling my cage really well. And it's good for me. I, I really need it. It's been, it's been like feeding my soul and, and feeding my heart. And in, in this book called The Imperfect Pastor, he makes this, makes this really critical observation. I think it's really helpful to our study this evening. Here's what he says. Listen to this. I don't think I have it on the screen. I just have it for you to listen to. Eswine says this. He says, imagine learning our doctrine of studying our best theologians while sitting in the ER amid anxious parents, traumatized children, gunshot wounds, and asthma attacks. Imagine reading theology amid the stale smell of coffee, the sound of tears, and the sights of perplexity, trauma, and frustration. How would this impact how we process the doctrines and categories of God's omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience? Or, or what if we read our doctrine of salvation where mental patients spook the halls, where medications, prayers, and helpless parents wrestle with insurance, paperwork, and the pressure of strained budgets? When Essine says this, he is quite literally basically asking this question, what if we really did see our relationships with God and others as opportunities to have our sinful pride crushed and our humility or our humbleness cultivated? What if our interactions with everyone around us, everyone around us actually began to humiliate our pride and promote humble humility? What if the way that, that, that we live our lives begin uh, to be changed by these questions and challenged by the fact and the truth that God crushes the proud and he promotes the humble? As you think about this principle, as you think about this final question, we think of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Here, here is the picture of Christ for us. Lest you think that maybe Jesus would show up at the table and would all just be about him. Let me read this. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul is saying, think this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think this way because you say Jesus is yours. Therefore, since you say he's yours, then you have his mind. You can think like him. You can because he's yours and you're his. And if you belong to each other, then you do have his mind to think like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't have to reach out to promote himself. Jesus didn't have to grasp for, for Godship and, and Godhood and power and control and, and the things that he wanted for himself. He didn't have to. You and I do that because we're always seeking to get his throne for ours. That's really the sinful problem deep within us. This is the reason that this picture of Jesus is so good because what Jesus did was he left all that behind. Verse seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Can you think about this? If you're God, why would you want to be born in the same likeness of the people that have desecrated your name? 
Why, why would you do that? The only reason that Jesus did this is because he came here to save you and I. See, he humbled himself. He, he, he gave up his godship, if you will. He left that throne in heaven. He knew he didn't have to reach out to get it because it was already his. So the king of everything began to walk among us and struggle with the same things that each of us has. This is the mind that Paul says to put on because it is ours in the Christ Jesus that we claim to serve and follow. Put this mind on because it belongs to you already. Like, don't leave this hanging in your closet like old clothes that don't fit. Put it on because you're supposed to wear this every day, right? He says this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. This is the reason that Jesus came. Therefore, God has highly exalted. Catch that. Jesus was obedient to the cross. He humbled himself from heaven to the earth so that he then could go to the cross. He humbled himself and then was exalted back up. This principle about having our pride crushed and having our humility promoted, that God crushes the proud and promotes the humble, this is coming straight from the picture that we have of Christ and what he did. He humbled himself obediently to a cross and then was later exalted to the right hand of the Father. It's in the same pattern that you and I are called to pursue, to fight for, to intentionally lean into, to live out daily. It's the same picture. We have this picture in Christ Jesus whom we put on. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Listen, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, there, there is no knee, there is no knee that was meant to bow to you or I. Like, like husbands and fathers, you can just be with me for a minute. Like our families were not there to serve our needs. We are there to serve them. And, and, and friends, all of you look around the room at people that you call friend. Do that, look around. I don't see you looking around. Look around, look around the room. Like, look, don't look at me. Look around the room. Like, look around the room at people's faces that you see. These people are your friends. That means that you, not them. See, I'm not saying they are here to serve you. I'm saying you are here to serve them. Now, if each one of us hears this correctly, and we live out this picture of Jesus coming from his high place, leaving it there, coming here, being born, and then obediently pursuing the cross, what will you and I do? We will pursue the way of humility, the way of placing our opinions, our wants, our desires, our needs, our troubles, our hurts. We'll lay them all aside. In fact, as we lay them aside, we'll lay them on the back of Jesus, whom we claim to be our king. Amen? Like, is Jesus your king? Because if he's your king, then you're taking all of your hurts, all of your worries, all of your wants, all of your desires, and you're placing them on him. Here's what happens instead, though. In Christian circles, a lot of times, is we place them on each other, and we want others to be our Messiah. Like, I want you, my friend, to be my Savior, make me feel good, to make me come along, to, to come alongside. No, no, this is Jesus' job. You and I's job is to then place all of that on him and then come alongside of everyone else. Yeah? Yeah, so, so, so he moves on. Verse 10. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. In other words, in other words, it is as Philip Ryken said at the very beginning, that we should follow the example of Jesus who was humiliated. We should follow the example of Jesus who was humiliated before he was exalted. As we've learned in this passage, God crushes the proud and he promotes the humble. It's with these thoughts, with these thoughts that I want to invite all of us to participate in communion together. As we do this in a moment, as we do this, please know that if you're with us and, you're, and you, you aren't a believer, and that we, we, we ask you not to engage in this meal with us because it would be meaningless and it would be religious and there's no power in that. You may be here and you may come to Christ like right now in these moments. Great. If you have, you trust in Christ, you believe that passage that says that God sent his son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will receive eternal life. If that's you, you believe that now. You're like, yeah, I'm sinful. I'm a mess. I can't fix myself and I need Jesus. That's you, then great. Then we would like you to come because then you get to celebrate with the rest of the family the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Doesn't matter if you begin to believe this in these moments or if you begin to believe it eons ago. If you are in fact a believer here with us this evening, then we invite you. You understand your need for Jesus. We invite you to come. Celebrate this meal with us. I invite you to continue to reflect on this fact, this truth. God crushes the proud and promotes the humble. you stand with me? Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the picture of Jesus that Luke continues to paint. Thank you for going to war for us, Jesus, for coming and being humbled and then being exalted. Thank you for the, the cross, which saves us. I pray for all that are here and all that are hearing this message, Lord God, that you would win some to you. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. Love you guys. Let's worship. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.